Thanks for joining us for Mississippi Prospects, a podcast focused on economic and community development in our state. Hosted by Jeff Rent and brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council. Mississippi has done very well in recruiting foreign direct investments to the state. All you have to do is look at our mix of corporate partners like Nissan, Toyota, Calby Foods, Ajinomoto Windsor, Continental, and Schultz Extruded Projects, just to name a few. Since 2016, the state has announced 16 foreign direct investment projects, accounting for more than 4,300 new jobs worth a total of $1.93 billion in new corporate investments. Chet Phillips has worked in economic development and site selection for more than five years. He started at the local level with the Community Development Foundation in Tupelo, Mississippi. Chet also worked at the state level as a project manager for the Mississippi Development Authority, where he focused on transportation equipment manufacturing projects with a special focus on East Asian investments. A graduate of the University of Puget Sound in Tacoma, Washington, he holds a bachelor's degree in politics and government and economics with a minor in Japanese language. Please welcome Navigator Consulting Senior Site Selection Consultant, Chat Phillips. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Full disclosure, Chat and I also work together. <laughs> That's true. At the Mississippi Development Authority, and I can tell you, uh, very talented and uh, have always been very professional and done a great job. Very nice of you to say. <laughs> Let's jump right in and talk about, you know, we're talking foreign direct investment today, also known as FDI. What makes Mississippi and the southeastern United States such an attractive region for so many global brands and all these different foreign-owned companies? Yeah, and I think it's important to understand the context between FDI movements in the Midwest and the Southeast historically. And I'll begin talking about the Southeast generally and then move into what makes Mississippi, I think, so unique and, and attractive to foreign direct investors. So historically speaking, as you all know, the uh, manufacturing cluster in the United States centered around the Great Lakes region and the Midwest. And as foreign direct investors were beginning to look into the United States market, uh, they were looking for an alternative. And quite simply, the southeastern United States was that low-cost alternative. Uh, and when you say low-cost, um, cost of living in the southeast was much lower. So labor rates were much lower. There was low unionization rates. Utility rates were, were much lower. So in the beginning, the southeast was a low-cost location. That has changed. And companies continue to invest in the southeast for a number of reasons. So in the southeast, you've seen not quite parity in labor rates and other cost factors. Uh, of course, labor rates and cost of living is still low in the southeast, but it's rising. Uh, unionization rates are still low. But taxes and economic climate have remained uh, cost competitive with the southeast in, in contrast to the rest of the country. And something else that has happened in the last 20 to 30 years is the industrialization of, of Mexico. So with the passage of NAFTA in 1994, uh, what you had was a manufacturing cluster in Mexico that suddenly exists and is quite powerful. And supply chains have started moving further south as well. So as you've seen, uh, not only have uh, more manufacturers located in the southeast, more have located in Mexico, which essentially moves the geographic center of manufacturing in North America further to the southeast. So from a supply chain perspective, let's just take automotive for an example. If you're looking at a new location in the United States and you're taking into account all of your different suppliers across North America, it now makes much more sense to be closer to the southern hemisphere than it does to the northern hemisphere. And the cost factors are still there. So 
you know, for Mississippi in particular, I think what makes Mississippi such an attractive location, it's, it's much different than other states, right? So when we work projects in Georgia, Tennessee, for example, they have very dense population centers. Mississippi, this, the total population size of Mississippi is 3 million approximately, which is less than most major cities in the southeast. Uh, but I think what makes Mississippi unique is it does have good connectivity to, to the southern hemisphere, particularly Latin and South America. It does have a very strong economic development group in both the state and local levels. I think Mississippi has a great crop of economic developers, and you've always had a very pro-business state government. Why should communities add foreign direct investment to their recruitment mix if they're not doing so anyway? Yeah, I think – so there are a couple of reasons. One is the economic reason. Foreign direct investors typically pay much more than the average manufacturing wage across the United States. That's not all true. That's not true for all cases. However, it is true on an average basis. But, you know, aside from that, having a foreign direct investor in a community can drastically open your community and give opportunities to members of your community that they wouldn't have previously. So, for example, there are many communities who, upon having their first German investor, will all of a sudden have an Oktoberfest, and they'll have members of the community going to and from Germany. So not only are there good economic reasons to have foreign direct investors in your community, there's also some cultural reasons too. And recruiting foreign-owned companies, uh, there can be an expensive process with no guaranteed outcomes. What is the first step in developing an FDI strategy in your community? Yeah, and this is something that we at Navigator Consulting work on quite a bit. Uh, So the first thing that we always advise communities to do is to really take stock of what your budget is going to be for the next year for your recruiting activities. Uh, We think it's important to really start at the base level. So what I mean by that is really work on developing your properties, working on your foreign direct investment infrastructure. And what I mean by that is understanding who your service providers are, who your essential onboarding team is for your community. So who's going to help the expatriates from a uh, from a relocation perspective. In addition to that, we really think it's important to understand your sites and your properties and get your marketing materials catered to foreign direct investors. And what I mean by that is not necessarily having it translated into Japanese or German or Chinese. I really mean getting your information uh, in a very clear and concise manner. I think as Americans, we try to market things in a very splashy kind of sexy way. But really, the information is king when you're marketing towards foreign direct investors. So that's step number one, really understand your budget, understand your local infrastructure, and understand your what you have to market to foreign direct investors. If you do have a budget to uh, make it overseas, for example, or uh, to do some limited recruiting, I would say the first and easiest step is to work with your regional foreign direct investment network. So what I mean by that are professionals who are regularly involved in foreign direct investment projects. Those can be accountants, attorneys, site selectors, but also things like JETRO, the Japan External Trade Organization, the Australian Trade Commission, the German American Chamber. Those are all networks of people who are involved in the business communities of their home countries and are involved in locating projects in in the United States. So, for example, in Mississippi, your JETRO office is in Houston, Texas. Your German American Chamber office is in Atlanta. It's oftentimes better to go to those locations and then work around that target market than to go to Japan or Germany without knowing anybody. And I would say if you do have the budget to take maybe one or two trips abroad every year, I would say – so the first thing to understand is that the sales cycle on foreign direct investment projects is much longer than I think – most people are prepared to work on them. So for us, you know, a typical sales cycle from the first time you meet a client to when we actually sign a contract with them is generally speaking two years. So we'll meet them for the first time. They're sort of interested. They're thinking about what cost factors to take into account 
when going to the United States and they're doing their business planning for at least two years. And that can be actually longer for our Japanese clients. Some of our clients uh, we've known for at least five years before they'll actually before they'll actually sign a contract. So I think you have to be in a mindset, in a, in a more long-term mindset than just, uh, okay, I'm going to go to Germany once and then I'll come back with three projects. I don't think that's typically how it works. So get prepared to go there for more times than maybe once a year and be prepared to have maybe a five-year plan. And then get involved with partners who kind of know the region. So for us, we're involved in the TBIC, the Transatlantic Business Investment Council, formerly the EAIC, the European American Investment Council. Uh, that is a great group if you're a community who has very little experience or some experience in Europe, for example, and you're trying to essentially dip your toe in the water of foreign direct investment in Europe, that's a good group to get involved in. They connect businesses and communities to uh, to each other. And that's not just in Germany. It's also places like Israel and Turkey, and they also do some Scandinavian recruitment. So it's really all of Europe. So finding those kind of networks to get into um, are really helpful. I would say uh, most communities like the idea of recruiting foreign direct investment. They'll set up trips. But they're finding that they're not really gaining any traction. And I think you have to be really uh, – you have to approach it with, with some intent and some strategy and come back and assess your results. And I can speak from experience in working with EAIC, now TBIC, that uh, there is consistent lead generation with European projects, that you do start seeing projects and also they do a great job of coordinating – trips. And as you were saying, if you're not as experienced in navigating the business world uh, internationally, this is a great way to to jump in and get familiar with the business climate in different countries. That's right. Or you can in, in TBIC aside, although we do have a great relationship with the TBIC, there are other consulting firms and other organizations that can help sort of bridge the gap between you and whatever country you're interested in, in going to. And if you have a strong state organization, they also often provide similar services. That's right. That's right. Most state organizations will have some form of an international recruitment team or a foreign office and are more than happy to assist communities and utilities in your region in doing so. I know the Mississippi Development Authority often organizes trips that partners uh, at all levels are right. open to them. And if you're able to swing it, and it's in your budget. That's right. And as a former MDA employee, uh, the international recruitment team and the foreign offices from Mississippi are, are world class. They're fantastic people. And I would highly encourage the communities in Mississippi to get to know those people. So depending upon the region, you know, Europe, Asia, how critical is it to understand the culture in order to establish a relationship? Because obviously the way of doing business in different regions uh, differs vastly. Yeah, I think I think it's everything, to be honest. Uh, so uh, the advice that we try to give people is, look, you don't have to know how to bow perfectly or how to say every single word in German or know exactly what kind of beer there is uh, in a particular region that you're visiting. The most important thing is really understanding how business communication happens in the country that you're visiting. The reason that I say that is because so many times when working with communities and foreign direct investors, uh, let's just take our German clients, for example, our Swiss clients, they can come off as somewhat pushy and aggressive when in reality they're not trying to be offensive. What they're really doing is communicating in the style that they're used to. So getting used to, for example, in Japan having a more indirect uh, form of communication in Germany – Getting used to people being somewhat in your face, understanding those things and how how they communicate is going to make you a much better recruiter in the future. 
I think. Uh, and also, you know, you're an American. People expect you to not understand 100% every aspect of the culture. And just like we enjoy showing Japanese people or, or German clients interesting facets about our culture, they enjoy, I think, sharing their culture with you. So don't, don't sweat the small stuff, I would say. Uh, really focus on how you communicate and how to best communicate with your clients. Would that go for your marketing materials as well, targeting them to the region and the culture? Absolutely. I would say, and I touched on this a little bit earlier, I would say as Americans, we we do tend to have a more, we place more emphasis on flash versus content. And I would say if you're marketing to someone who doesn't speak English, uh, who maybe is used to just looking at, because many times we're used to working with engineers and operations managers and things like that. They're not really interested in the marketing content. They're more interested in the actual data and the numbers and statistics that you're presenting to them. So I would say as you're preparing your materials, uh, even I, I wouldn't even say translating them is is uh, 100% necessary all the time. Because if you think about it, if you're reading a document that's in French, for example, uh, and you see sort of an Excel spreadsheet with units attached to, to numbers, you can kind of piece together what's on that pieces of information. But if it's got all of these infographics and things like that, it's kind of hard to really parse out the info. So absolutely, I would say if you're developing international marketing materials, really put a focus on on the content versus the marketing side. Is translation an important part if you're visiting a country? I know you speak Japanese, Mm -hmm. um, and that certainly would go a long way in assisting uh, navigating through the process. Yeah, I would say translation is probably second to understanding communication style. I I would say in Japan and China, for example, probably having somebody who speaks the language is a little bit bit easier because uh, they don't use Germanic characters, for example. So it's a little bit harder to navigate the, the region. You know, in most of Europe, if you speak English and you speak it with, you know, a relatively easy to understand accent, which can be a challenge for, for us Mississippians, then you're going to be fine, I think. But also, it's always, it's always nice to have somebody who's used to being there. I know it can be incredibly helpful. I want you to, we're going to look in the crystal ball now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, going back to the 1950s, we have seen several waves of foreign direct investments in the U.S. First wave with the chemical manufacturing companies. Then with the automotive manufacturers back in the 1990s, in your opinion, and we're going to say it's, it's purely your opinion, uh, what sector is primed to be the next wave of FDI or are we still in this second wave of OEMs? Because I know in Mississippi, you know, manufacturing, automotive manufacturing is still a very strong growth sector. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. And, and I would say – you're right. Automotive is not done. Uh, there is a lot of moving parts in the automotive industry right now that could really have an impact on the supply chain and the manufacturing sector. Uh, so take, for example, of course, there's the NAFTA renegotiations with the USMCA, the US-Mexico-Canada agreement. There's also the electrification of vehicles and the autonomous vehicle trend that's moving forward. We've seen Chattanooga, uh, excuse me, Volkswagen in Chattanooga, for example, announce that they'll produce electric vehicles in that facility. And Toyota Mazda also will have uh, in the future some sort of electric vehicle in their in their manufacturing mix in that facility. So all of those things will will drastically impact the supply chain in the automotive sector in the southeast. So. I think automotive is not done. It may not be to the same extent as it was in 2005, 2007. But what I think you'll see a lot of uh, a lot of manufacturers really retooling their facilities, new types of suppliers coming in, and probably more larger capital investments in the automotive sector versus, let's just say, tier three engine part component manufacturers that have located in the past. So if I had to look in the crystal ball about the automotive sector, that would be my prediction. I would say in terms, if we had to really define this next era of Direct, foreign direct investment, 
it, I think it's really going to be China centric. I, you know, I often hear, and because I was not working inside selection in the 1980s, but I often hear the anecdote that China is right now where Japan was in the 1980s. So there are a few Chinese investments that have been successful. There's not really a strong network set up to to really funnel and help Chinese companies along just yet. Uh, but there is tremendous interest uh, from Chinese companies in investing in the United States, and I think. Uh, we just ha- we haven't really seen that bear out yet, but I think it's coming in a big way. They've been, you know, if I think back on the statistics, they've been among the top five fastest growing sources of FDI in the United States for the last five years, and I think it's been pretty minimal so far. So I think that's probably going to define the next era. And I, you know, if I'm kind of looking in the crystal ball some more. I think Brazil could be a really, really interesting player for foreign direct investment, and particularly in Mississippi, we've seen. A lot of Brazilian companies acquire U.S. businesses in the agribusiness sector, food products manufacturing and wood products manufacturing. So that could be a really interesting market for Mississippi as well. But I would say if I were to, if I were to really look out for the next five years and say, okay, what's going to be interesting about the next five years, I would say China for sure and then maybe Brazil. Any sectors that are kind of primed to start moving energy sector? Yeah. Uh, I think right now a lot of it has to do with with tariff jumping, the act of getting in front of tariffs that are potentially on the horizon. So a lot of that is in the automotive industry, uh, solar-related industry, batteries, uh, and others. And I think um, what's been really interesting is that wood product manufacturing has come back in a big way in the United States. Uh, And that's not just in the furniture manufacturing. That's also pulp and paper manufacturing from Chinese investors and others. Um, So that's been a really interesting trend. So I think you're seeing a lot of interest right now from industries that are trying to get in front of tariffs, Um, not necessarily investing quite yet, but a lot of that is going on. For sure. So I'm going to skip around a little on my questions here okay. um, because you're bringing up tariffs and also mentioned NAFTA. How is the current political climate really affecting foreign direct investments in the U.S., you know, such as NAFTA and the threat of tariffs? Yeah, uh, it's affecting in a, in a big way. And I think what's important to parse out is that a lot of people will take what I'm about to say and say the impacts of the trade tariffs and NAFTA renegotiations are going to be negative in the long term. Really, what has affected FDI is the uncertainty surrounding these trade negotiations. So we have seen uh, a decrease in foreign direct investment since 2015 on a pretty significant level. And uh, really, the reasoning behind that is, well, there are a number, and we can talk about them later, but it's really uncertainty revolving, uh, revolving around NAFTA, uh, trade negotiations with China and then the U.S. and Mexico and also the EU, uh, but also tax reform, and, among others. So there are just so many moving parts that people don't – companies don't really know what to make of it quite yet. But I think we are probably primed to have another wave of having an uptick of investment, if that makes any sense. I think we've kind of reached at least a, a somewhat of a bottom as long as the economics uh, – as long as the economic situation – kind of levels out, I think we'll probably see an uptick in FDI in, in the next years. Yeah, because according to the Bureau of Economic Analysis, since 2015, we have seen a decrease. Now, 2015 uh, was an excellent year, yeah. but then we have seen market decrease since then. So are we seeing just fewer projects and opportunities uh, that are coming over? And if they're weary of coming to the U.S. because of some of the uncertainty with these issues, 
are they going to take their projects elsewhere, go play in a different sandbox, so to speak? Yeah, I think that's a good point. And um, I will give a little bit of context to those numbers. So uh, first of all, FDI is tracked by the BEA, the Bureau of Economic Analysis in the United States. And that number, generally speaking, includes greenfields, expansions, and mergers and acquisitions. Mergers and acquisitions make up the the largest percentage of that by a wide margin. I think it usually ends up being 90 to 95% of foreign direct investment. So when we extrapolate the data and look at just greenfields and expansions, the same trend holds true. So I think in 2015, we probably had uh, something close to 18, mil- excuse me, $18 billion in greenfield investments in the United States. And in in 2017, I haven't seen the most recent data for 2018 yet. I think it's closer to about $7 billion. So uh, that's quite a difference. But I think the important thing to note is, one, the U.S. is still the largest recipient of foreign direct investment in the entire world. Two, foreign direct investment flows across the globe are down. So if you looked at a graph for China, for example, it would almost replicate the United States. So what we've seen are foreign direct investment flows from developed countries are decreasing and they are increasing to developing countries. So let's just take this as an example. So if the U.S. and China are going through trade negotiations, which they are at this point in time, and Chinese companies are wanting to invest their capital outside of China, and traditionally they would have invested in the U.S., but they aren't really sure what's going to happen with the trade negotiations. One way to both uh, invest capital outside of China and to get around the tariffs is to invest that in a country in Southeast Asia, for example. So we have seen a lot of capital move from China, Japan, Korea to Vietnam, Thailand, for example. So that, that has occurred. And it's as I said before, a lot of that is because of the tax reform in the United States, because uh, in addition to being the largest recipient of FDI, the United States is also one of the largest sources of FDI. So once the tax reform took hold, there was a lot of repatriation of U.S. capital back to the United States. So Europe, for example, had a massive decrease in FDI in the last five years or so as a result of the tax reform and uncertainties and all the other things I've mentioned in the past. But uh, I would say, as I alluded to earlier, that does not take into account projects that are announced. It only takes into account money that actually flows into the United States. And what we've seen in the number of announcements, because we do keep kind of an ongoing list within our own company, and what we've seen when we look at the announcements that have happened this last year, we would expect that number to go up in 2019. Is there a reciprocal expectation that if a country is bringing projects over here, they're going to have some expectation uh, to see FDI in their own country from the U.S.? Hmm, that's a good that's a good question. I don't necessarily see that as much actually. You know, it's it's difficult to to say. So historically speaking, you know, it's been the FDI inflows, let's just take China for example. Um it's it's been kind of a one-way relationship in the past. I mean, the US has invested in manufacturing facilities in China uh for quite some time. And then now China is investing in manufacturing facilities in the US. I don't necessarily think there's a reciprocal relationship there. Apples and oranges. Apples and oranges, yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. If I'm a small community, I'm looking to get into the game, let's just go over what are the first steps they need to do if they don't have an FDI strategy today. What can they do to get the ball rolling? And like you said, they also sounds like need to plan pretty long term that this is not a quick process. That's right. That's right. And a lot of the advice that I give to communities sounds uh, sounds pretty similar to what most – like. 
professional economic developers would give to to other communities is so the first thing you've got to do is you've got to get your sites and properties in order and what i mean by that is not necessarily you don't have to spend $50,000 on developing a site but you have to understand the costs and timelines associated with development of that site so you can communicate so you can communicate that to a foreign direct investor so if you show up with a flyer for example with nothing but trees on it and utilities that are a mile away uh, if you if someone in Germany or Japan sees that, they're automatically thinking about all the permitting and legal work they're going to have to do just to develop that site because they're used to governments in their home countries that are much more restrictive on what they can develop. So I would say understand your properties first. Understand what the cost is going to be, what the timeline and what the processes would be for developing that property. So you can convey that quite easily to a client. That's number one. Uh, number two, I would say and this, I think I touched on this earlier, is really understand what your assets are in your community from an international perspective. We don't expect everybody to have a Japanese Saturday school, but we expect you to know where the nearest one is. Uh, we don't expect everybody to have a German expat uh, attorney or uh, lawyer in the in the area, but we expect some sort of understanding of where they can get those types of people. So that's the first thing I would say. Really understand that first. And then, you know, cater your marketing materials to all those things. And I mentioned this earlier, but one of the biggest things that we see that communities that really get recruiting FDI is that they are transparent in the way that they present their materials. So one of the negative biases that we have about Americans internationally is that we kind of uh, – we're marketers at heart. We're all marketers. We're all good salespeople, speakers, presentation givers. Uh, but what that leads to, I think, in the, in the international community is a, a certain level of distrust about what we're saying. So I would, you know, when you're communicating with someone or you're developing your marketing materials, avoid uh, superfluous or uh, hyperbolic language. Um, don't use words such as we have the best or this is the cheapest. Just just present the information as it is and help them understand what that means for their company. It's just like every other uh, economic developer who's recruiting a domestic company. I would say, you know, really understand what you have within your community and convey it in a way that makes sense to a foreign direct investor. And do your research and speak to an expert. Yep, that's right. That's right. Talking to Navigator Consulting Senior Site Selection Consultant Chet Phillips. Domo arigato gozaimasu. <laughs> arigato Mississippi Prospects is brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council, the Mississippi Development Authority, Cooperative Energy, Greater Jackson Alliance, Entergy, Mississippi Power, Tennessee Valley Authority, Watkins and Eager, Butler Snow, Jones Walker, and produced by Pottery Studios. If you have questions or comments, join us on Twitter at MEDC Info.